we changed that music because somebody said something to us last week and said, you know, that doesn't fit. We've got to have uh, music from the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, on there. Hey, uh, happy Father's Day. Just want to say to dads, uh, so glad you guys are here. And I uh, want to thank you guys for the love that you have for your families, love that you have for your kids. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, I don't know how many of you guys know this. Maybe some of you remember it. But uh, I started uh, ministry doing children's ministry. I don't know if you recall that. But uh, I, I started doing children's ministry. And I, and I have to tell you that it was, uh, it was really a hard decision for me to make a shift from children's ministry to doing adult ministry because it was such a blast. And I'm telling you, it was fun. And not only was it fun, but statistics show that 85% of people who trust Christ do it between the ages of 4 and 14. So it's an incredibly fertile mission field. Now, why do I say all this? Well, it's because we have a summer camp coming up. And man, if you've, I don't know if you went to camps when you were a kid, but you remember those. Those are significant, uh, life-shaping events. And we need some people to volunteer uh, for this summer camp. And so if you would be willing to volunteer... Uh, for the camp, you can go to citychurchevv.com slash sign up. Remember that, citychurchevv.com slash sign up. That's kind of going to be uh, increasingly uh, our hub for all the things happening in the church and for how to sign up to be a part of them. And if you would like to be a volunteer and work in that ministry, we would appreciate it very, very much. Again, citychurchevv.com slash what? Sign up. Thank you guys very much. Let's say a quick word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, speak to us today uh, through your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, open our hearts, challenge our hearts. And we thank you for truth. Thank you that you love us so much that you give us truth. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like to find a passage that uh, probably most of you have never been asked to find. It's in the Old Testament, and it's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, we're in a series that we began uh, last week on six of the lesser-known kings of Israel. The series, as you saw, is called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Last week, we looked at a king named Rehoboam. I want to dive right in this morning, but just one quick uh, mea culpa. Uh, the subtitle of this series is a bit misleading. Uh, I called it the lesser known uh, kings of Israel. I did that because most people don't realize that near the end of its national sovereignty, Israel split into two nations, one from the north, which kept the name Israel, and one from the south that uh, took the name Judah. You can see it on the map. Uh, that we're going to put up behind me. Yeah, that's kind of how you can't probably see all the details of that. But the bottom line is that the north part in the purple uh, retained the name Israel and then the southern part uh, took the name Judah. So for simplicity's sake, I just refer to these kings that we're going to be looking at as the lesser known kings of Israel. But some of them are actually uh, from the southern kingdom Judah. Like the one that we're going to look at today, whose name is Asa. So please forgive me if the title was a little bit misleading. Okay, let's uh, walk through the narrative of Asa's reign, and at the end I'll bring it all together. Let's begin with God's summary 
his summary statement of Asa's 41-year reign in verse 2 of chapter 14. And just kind of keep your fingers nimble, nimble because we're going to be moving through a lot of verses today. Verse 2, chapter 14, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now I want you to remember this. And we will uh, come back to it later because I have to tell you that this seems more obvious that he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God at the beginning of Asa's reign than at the end. For now though, I just want you to remember that this is how God assessed Asa's reign over Judah. Skip down now uh, to verse 11. And we're going to catch Asa at the beginning of his reign when a huge, vastly superior army from Ethiopia is planning an attack on Asa and Judah. Judah has no chance to win this. None. Zip. This is a David and Goliath kind of thing. They're going to get squashed like bugs. And so with his back against the wall and the smell of blood and death in the air, Asa turns to the Lord. Verse 11. Asa called to the Lord his God. And he said, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. And verse 12 tells us that in response to that prayer, look, the Lord struck down the Cushites, uh, the Ethiopians, before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. Such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed uh, before the Lord and his forces. So this is an amazing uh, victory. Like this is big. This is huge. This is miraculous. Some people might say this is uh, like IU ever winning a national championship again. <laughs> or if that offends you, my Dallas Cowboys ever winning a Super Bowl again. Like it's a total God thing. Can't happen without supernatural intervention. Now in the interest of time, I'm, I'm going to summarize some of the things that happen next. To reinforce this miraculous victory upon Asa's heart and mind, God sends a prophet to encourage Asa. And he says to Asa, keep trusting in him. Keep trusting in God at all times. And he tells him that, that as long as you trust in him, uh, God will always be faithful. And he will bless you, Asa. And he will bless Judah as a nation when you trust him. And so Asa is so fired up that he calls Judah together and they have, a, like they have a big worship service where the people of Judah dedicate themselves to the Lord and they say, Lord, we'll follow you. And the text says that Asa went out and he knocked down all of the pagan idols uh, that were in Judah and he cleaned house on the idol worship that had started again there, a recurring problem, if, if you recall. In fact, he's so committed to getting rid of the idols. Watch this. Skip over now to chapter 15. Uh, chapter 15, and I want you to look at verse 16. This is how committed Asa is to cleaning out the idols. King Asa also deposed his grandmother, Maaka, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Now listen, that's commitment. When you start kicking your idol-worshiping grandma out of her job as queen mother, you're serious about cleaning house. Like imagine how that conversation went. Sorry grandma, security packed your stuff into boxes. It's all out of U-Haul. Uh, be sure to leave your pass key and forwarding address on the way out. I mean that takes, that takes chutzpah, right? 
And uh, the result of all of this work that Asa is doing uh, is that God blesses Asa and the people of Judah. Verse 15 says, the Lord gave them rest on every side. Skip down to verse 19. There was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Peace. 35 years of peace, in fact, which might not seem like much to you. But in the history of the Jewish people, there have been precious few years that they've been able to rest from their enemies and live in peace. So this was a, a big deal. Incredible start for this king of Judah. Like if they, if they took polls back in the day, Asa's approval ratings were off the chart. Not that it mattered. You couldn't get rid of him. I mean, being a king was a lifetime gig. But the point is, he's off to a phenomenal start. Uh, but great starts don't guarantee great endings, do they? Let's skip over to chapter 16 now, verse 1. We are in the 36th year of Asa's 41-year reign. And I want you to watch what happens. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Now, you probably get what's happening here. It's really very sad. God's, God's people at war with each other. The north, Israel, versus the south, Judah. Sad. It's like when a church splits and the people start to attack one another. It is, it is really, really very sad. The king over the northern kingdom essentially tries to wall off the southern kingdom from the rest of the world. And it's certainly an aggressive move. Certainly an aggressive move. But compared to what Asa experienced 35 years ago, what we just read when the Ethiopians... Uh, came against Judah. This isn't that big of a deal militarily. And certainly compared to kicking your grandma out of her role as queen mother or de-idolizing all of Judah, this isn't really that big of a deal. And so on the basis of what he did in the past, you just assume that Asa's just going to turn to God as he had done all of those years ago and as God had promised, he's going to come through for Asa and everyone in Judah lives happily ever after. Except, except, except... Well, I'll tell you what, read on. Verse 2, Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple, out of his own palace, and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm, I'm sending you silver and gold. Now, break the treaty that you have with Baasha, king of Israel, so he will uh, withdraw from me. And it's, it's a, strategically, it's a smart move. He, he, he pays off a pagan king to break his treaty with Israel and attack them so that they will have to withdraw from their attack against Judah and go fight elsewhere. And it, I mean, again, strategically, seems like a really smart move. The plan works, or at least it seems to. 
But Asa gets another visit from the prophet that God sent once before to encourage him. Only the prophet this time isn't bringing good news. Skip down to verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a, a mighty army? In other words, he's going back in time now, you know, 35 years ago. He said, weren't they a, 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 a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet, when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You've done a foolish thing. And from now on, you will be at war. Wait. Wait, I, what did Asa do that was so wrong? I mean, he formulated a strategic plan and it worked. What's, what's wrong with that? The problem is that something has changed in Asa. When the Ethiopians, uh, excuse me, when the Ethiopians, or the Cushites as they're called here, uh, came up against Judah 35 years ago, Asa relied on the Lord. He had to. He didn't have any political alliances. He had no military strength. He didn't have any financial resources to buy his way out of this. And so he did what he had to do. He prayed, Lord, we can't take these guys. We're, we're completely overpowered. We need your help. We must rely on you. And God came through and then promised to do the same thing that every time Asa, to do the same time, the same thing every time Asa called on him. But now, 35 years later, Asa's got some experience under his belt. Like he knows a few things. And 35 years of peace has made him prosperous. So he's got money to spare. And frankly, frankly, who needs God when you've got money, political alliances, and a plan? Uh, you've probably heard this quote before. In fact, you may have heard it from me. I may have used it before here. It's, it's an occupational hazard when you speak as much as I do that you, you uh, repeat often things that you've said before. Uh, but it goes like this. The Scottish historian and writer Thomas Carlyle uh, said this once. He said, Adversity is sometimes hard on a man, but for one man who can withstand prosperity, there are a hundred that will withstand adversity. Uh, I'll say it again. Uh, adversity is sometimes hard on a man, but for one man who can withstand prosperity, there are a hundred that will withstand adversity. You get the point, right? You understand it. You, 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 you feel it. Let, let's call this, let's call it the peril of prosperity. The peril of prosperity. Now, I, look, I, I know you might not feel particularly prosperous, especially with the economy and the state it is these days. But if we expand our definition of prosperity a bit and compare life in 2022 to, say, life in 1822 or 1922 or even 1952, I suspect most of us would agree that even the poorest among us have all benefited tremendously from the increasing prosperity of our nation. Central air and heat and automobiles, grocery stores, computers, all of these are great blessings. But, 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 they dull, they do dull the edge of our sense of reliance upon the Lord. I don't have to fight through the adversity of frigid cold or the blistering heat. I can just turn the heat on or the, or the AC on. I don't, I don't have to go out and kill dinner. I can just 
go out to eat or run to the grocery store or call Uber Eats, you know? I, I don't have to wait for a year for someone to bring news from a relative in Kansas. I can just click on an icon on my phone and have easy access to everything going on in the world today, right now. And if I'm honest, I have to admit to you, I sometimes have a hard time believing it. I really need to rely on God for anything. This is the peril of prosperity. Watch what prosperity has done to Asa's heart. The prophet comes to challenge him, and he does. And then in verse 10, watch this. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. Skip down to verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. And though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. And then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. Not that there's anything wrong with going to doctors. The point is that prosperity had shifted Asa's center of gravity, which is what prosperity tends to do. It lulls us. See, it lulls us into a kind of hyper-materialism, a, a, belief that, a belief that all that matters is, is, is matter. Like reality only consists of things here on earth. And that tends to harden hearts. Early in his reign, Asa knew that he needed spiritual resources. At this point, though, well, as I said a moment ago, who needs God when you've got money and political power and science and physicians? The thing that ought to get your attention, though, is that for some period of time, Asa didn't realize there was a problem. Baasha was off his back, out of his backyard. All seems good to Asa, but he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know what his self-reliance has cost him. Hanani tells him, had you relied on God as you had in the past, he would have dealt with Baasha and Ben-Hadad both, and you would have continued to live in peace, but now you'll be at war for the rest of your life. And by the way, don't let that word war pass you by. Ask the people in Ukraine about war, about the atrocities of war. Self-reliance in Asa's case cost people's lives and cost safety. And so prosperity works until it doesn't. Or here's another way of saying it. There's a cost to our self-reliance. You know, prosperity tends to lull us into hyper-materialism and there's a cost to that. There's a cost to why? why? Why is there a cost to self-reliance? Have you ever thought about that? Why does, why does prosperity work until it doesn't? Why is there a cost to it? Is, it? is it just because God resents prosperity or power or scientific advancement? Is he out to punish people who have those things or who've benefited from them in some way? Is he jealous in a petty way? Wants to keep you and me and us poor and powerless and unsophisticated so that we always need him? Is that why he does it? Is that, is that why there is this peril of prosperity? 
Or could there be another reason that God warns us here about the peril of prosperity through Asa's life, the cost of self-reliance? Is it possible there's some other reason that he's warning us? Let's shift gears for just a moment. Let's move from ancient Israel to sophisticated, powerful, wealthy, scientifically advanced 21st century America in the year 2022. On May 14th, an 18-year-old named Peyton Gendron entered a Topps-friendly top Markets grocery store in Buffalo, New York and opened fire, killing 10 black people and injuring three others. On May 15th, a 68-year-old man named David Chow killed one person and critically wounded four other members of the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church in Laguna Woods, California. On May 24th, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos entered a fourth-grade classroom in Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, and fatally shot 19 students and two teachers, wounding 17 other people, and this after he shot his grandmother in the forehead at home, severely wounding her. On June 1st, 45-year-old Michael Lewis walked into the St. Francis Health System in Tulsa, Oklahoma, killing five people. On June 4th, three people were killed and 12 injured in a shooting in Philadelphia. And just Thursday night, this past Thursday night, a 71-year-old Alabama man attending a church potluck dinner pulled out a handgun and started firing, killing three elderly people. Now, in the days since this recent spate of shootings, all manner of suggestions have been made for how to deal with the issue of gun violence and mass shootings. Some have been political, create laws that ban assault rifles, create red flag laws. Some have been pragmatic, single entries for schools, more security at schools, armed teachers. Some have been sociological, there's a problem with kids with absentee dads. There's a, there's a family crisis in America that needs to be addressed, some have said. Still others have been psychological. There's a mental crisis in America that needs tended to. The thing, of, the thing about all of these solutions, the thing that they have all have in common, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that they're bad, but I am suggesting, I am suggesting that what they all have in common is that they assume the causes for mass shootings are all flesh and blood causes. But is that really all it is? Just flesh and blood? Is it really just bad parenting or poverty or some other sociological or psychological reason that is causing mass shootings? Is it possible there's something else at work too? Is it conceivable that an external evil combined with some of these other issues intertwine in some mysterious way to produce the horrific realities that we've seen played out in the last month in, in 21st century America? See, I think that if everyone here in this room took off their biases and blinders for a moment, you would look at Uvalde, for instance, and say, it's impossible to think that bad parenting, destitute beginnings, poor education, or other sociological causes fully explain that. It's so unspeakably horrible, something else is at work. 
And in the New Testament, there is this famous passage in which the Apostle Paul writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand firm. And you see, this brings me back to Asa's story and why God warns us of the peril of prosperity or if you want to call it the cost of self-reliance. Forgive me for putting it this way. The Jewish people in that day, Asa's, the people of Judah, the people of Israel as well, needed to understand that they had a target on their back. There was a spiritual enemy who was working against them, fighting against them, because the Messiah was to come from the Jewish people. And so this spiritual enemy, this evil, was constantly working to destroy the Jewish people every way he could, from foreign armies on the outside, from civil war on the inside, through idols, through intermarriage, through political alliances, and even through peace and prosperity. Obliterate Israel, and there can be no Jewish Messiah. That's... That's what those people needed to understand. And I have good news and bad news for you this morning. First, the bad. Just like with Israel, there are spiritual forces of evil aligned against you. And not only you, but everyone you love. And City Church and every gospel preaching church in the world. And if that sounds nuts to you, that there are spiritual forces of evil aligned against you, if that sounds nuts to you, like Asa, you have been lulled into a hyper-materialism that leaves you vulnerable to self-reliance. It is not overly dramatic to say that there is a battle being fought over you and around you every day. Your soul, the souls of your loved ones, your children, your husband, your wife, your best friend, they've all been claimed by supernatural evil. You and I are living in enemy territory, my friend. Go back to what Asa said in the first war that he fought. This was before prosperity had shifted his center of gravity and blinded him to reality. Look at what he said, chapter 14, verse 11. Then Asa called the Lord his God and he said, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you and in your name we've come against this vast army. Powerless against the mighty. You are powerless against the spiritual forces that are aligned against you. Money, power, education, athletic ability, beauty, all worthless and pathetic weapons in the spiritual reality that is being, the spiritual battle that is being fought for your soul and your kid's soul and your wife's soul and your husband's soul. If that's all you have, money, power, education, athletic ability, beauty, if that's all you have, if that's all your kids have, the battle's over. You've lost. They've lost. But there's good news too. And here's the good news. 
that God is eager to help those who rely upon him. How do I know that? How do I know that? Here's what Hannah and I said to Asa. Back in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, he said, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's eager. God is eager to help those who rely upon him. How do you respond to this? What, what are you supposed to do with Asa's story? What are we supposed to do? Since it's Father's Day, let me speak to dads. This applies to everyone here, of course. But because it's Father's Day, let me speak to dads, granddads, wannabe dads, you know, whoever. Here's how you respond. Number one, you need to renounce self-reliance because you are powerless against an evil that is much mightier than you. Number one, renounce self-reliance. There's nothing wrong with money and power, physicians and science, nothing wrong with any of that. But if you think any of that will deal with a spiritual battle that's going on around you and your children, you're absolutely wrong. You are powerless. You need to renounce self-reliance. Number two, Pray like Asa did early in his reign. Pray for yourself, for your loved ones, for City Church, for the gospel. Pray. Pray. Number three, be ruthless about the idols in your life that are destroying you and your family, dads. Tear them down. Take them out. Kick grandma to the curb if you have to. No, I'm kidding you about that. But... Be ruthless about the idols in your life. Number four, stop playing Christian. Stop playing church. Stop living as if the only things going on in your world and our world is flesh and blood because there is so much more. The famous quote from Hamlet to Horatio and Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Matter isn't all that matters. There is a spiritual reality, battle that is being fought for your soul, the souls of your loved ones, your children, your family, your friends, everyone. And in that realm, your money makes no difference. Your power makes no difference. Your science makes no difference. Your technology makes no difference. Your political alliances make no difference. Your party affiliation makes no difference. And it's being fought, this battle is being fought constantly, 24-7, 365. The enemy is after you, your family, your children, everyone, and he's using every possible way to attack them. He'll work inside the family and outside the family. He'll work through peace and prosperity in your family. You are powerless. Last thing. I still owe you something. How is it that after Asa's disastrous end... God could summarize his life by saying that, remember what he said in verse 2? 
He said, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. How could God summarize him that way when at the end of his life he made such terrible mistakes? There's a phrase that was uh, the most important theological phrase, really, to come out of the Protestant Reformation. And the phrase was, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. You ever heard that phrase before? It means simultaneously justified and a sinner. And what it means is that when a person believes in Christ, you're justified through faith in Christ. In other words, you're, you're, you're seen by God because of your faith in Christ as righteous in a legal sense, even though in a practical sense, you, me, we're all sinners. When God sees us, he sees us as justified and righteous because of what Christ did on the cross for us. Our, our moral failures don't separate us from God nor change how he sees us. And what you see here in this Old Testament story of Asa is the consistency of God's dealings with people in the Old Testament and the New. People often say, oh, the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. No, 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 no. The basis for a relationship with God has always been faith in the Messiah and people have always been saved by grace. True enough, Christ had not come yet when Asa was alive. But notice the last four words of 2 Chronicles 14 verse 2. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Asa had believed in advance, you might say, in the coming Messiah, and God credits the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection to him. And so the Bible is honest about Asa's failures, but it reminds us here that for those who have believed upon Christ, we are always seen by God covered in the blood of Christ and cleansed by his righteousness. And I don't know about you, but that is extremely encouraging to me. And I hope it is to you too. Because while it's true that I am justified by faith in Christ, I am also still a sinner. Simul justus et peccator. God says about Asa, this very imperfect man who made terrible mistakes, that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Uh, life reality is so deceptive because we easily fall prey, Lord, to the idea that all that is here is what we can see and touch and feel. And we forget that there is a constant spiritual battle being fought for our souls and the souls of the people that we love. And Our hearts, our perspective gets dulled and we become self-reliant and we forget how desperately we need you. Thank you for the story of Asa, which reminds us of that, how desperately we need you. There are battles being fought around us that we can't even see. The enemy is fighting for, for us, for everyone we love. 
Lord, would you drive that point home to us today? Make us people who, are, who pray. Make us people who recognize our need to pray. Make us people who are ruthless about the idols that are in our lives, that are destroying us and destroying our families. And Lord, thank you so much for the fact that you have covered us, those who have believed here this morning, in the blood of Christ. And though we are not perfect people, we are justified in your sight and seen as righteous. Thank you that grace has always been the basis upon which people are saved through belief in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.